Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cold exposure, cold thermogenesis, ice plunges, cold showers, all of these things are all the rage right now in the recovery and biohacking world. So I went to the lady who has literally made it her profession, Dr. Susanna Soberg, who is the founder of the Soberg Institute and the Thermalist uh, Cure. She is uh, the world's leading international scientist on cold exposure and ultimately heat uh, therapy as well, and their influence on stress, health, and optimal performance. And she's going to give us all the latest research today and allow us to ultimately sift through the information, the misinformation, and the noise to get down to what truly matters and ultimately how we can make the most of this truly remarkable and often life-changing modality. And that's that term is used a lot, but for a lot of people that I interact with on a weekly basis, cold thermogenesis, and ultimately saunas as well, is nothing short of a life-changing modality. And I think there's a lot of people out there who think they know what they're talking about. There's a lot of people out there who spout misinformation. Uh, so I wanted to get right to the lady who has actually spent the last number of years getting to the bottom of the research. So since 2016, Susanna has dedicated her life to research to the effect of cold and heat exposure on human health. Her interests continue to focus on the connection between our physical and mental health and how those ultimately can be impacted by cold and heat exposure. She has ultimately uh, an incredible depth of scientific research and experience uh, in all of the areas with regard to human optimization, uh, cold health's impact on the cardiovascular system, insulin sensitivity, mental health, mental balance, the connection between brown fat, what brown fat actually is, and uh, brown fat and its effect on metabolic health, how infrared saunas can improve skin and disease, um, pain can improve muscular health, joint pain, and so many more things. I really love this conversation with Dr. Susanna Selberg. You may have heard her in the past on places like the Huberman Lab podcast, where he, Dr. Andrew Huberman, dives into all things related to cold health. We also discuss um, infrared sauna protocols. We discuss contrast therapy, hot and cold, back and forth, and get into some really useful protocols that Susanna has substantiated to optimize hot and cold, um, and so much more. Right before we get into this podcast, I want to bring you a special note from our sponsor for today. You may train like a pro athlete, you may eat like a pro athlete, but are you recovering like a pro athlete? Pro sports teams have entire teams dedicated to telling your athletes precisely how to act, how to train, how to perform, and how to recover. And now you can access the same information that they're using to ultimately integrate all of your wearable data. Our friends over at AIM7 are giving you a killer deal to try out AIM7, this incredible platform that integrates all your wearable data and gives you usable information that ultimately allow you to make great decisions on how to most effectively train, how to most effectively recover. There's so much information out there. I personally use a Garmin. I personally use an Aura. I'm actually picking up an Apple Watch because I've been recently made aware that it is actually the most accurate modality for measuring. And I'm using that information in my AIM-7 uh, platform to ultimately help me make more accurate decisions. AIM-7 
is the brainchild of a previous guest, Dr. Eric Quorum, and his team of PhD sports scientists. They built this unique performance system tailored to your unique physiology that perfectly pairs with any training plan and ultimately shows you how to improve your sleep, how to be more motivated, how to get more energy, and ultimately how to have less stress. And you can try AIM-7 for the rest of the year for one single dollar, uh, very low investment to you for high potential upside. Head over to uh, the the App Store, download AIM-7, and you can also get it on their website if you use the code MUSCLEAIM7. Again, that's M-U-S-C-L-E-A-I-M number seven. Uh, and this is just for the muscle intelligence community. Dr. Susanna Soberg, the world authority on thermogenesis, hot and cold exposure. Uh, thank you very much for making the time to join me today. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. You have an incredible wealth of knowledge that the world is seeking right now. As I think you're very well aware, there's so many people out there who are very interested in, in cold thermogenesis, sauna exposure, heat shock proteins. And so who better than uh, yourself to come on and teach the world true protocols and ultimately how to sift through all the information and potentially misinformation. So I'd love to maybe have you start and talk to us about uh, maybe how you got your start in uh, not even the hot and cold world, but maybe like what your studies were in university and uh, and beyond. Yeah, so how I got started with this, well, it was kind of, it came out of always out of a curiosity, right? It's the question where you ask yourself, what is actually going wrong? And at the time where I asked this question a lot was uh, while I was working at the hospital and I had a lot of patients coming in and we operated and stuff like that. And we had so many people suffering. And I think I can speak for me and a lot of my colleagues back then that we went home and we were not really satisfied about what our job because it's hard seeing people suffer. So what I did is I kept studying. I kept studying even though I was just working. So I wanted to figure out, well, why are people unhealthy? Why are people coming with these diseases? And to boil that down to the result of that was type 2 diabetes, obesity, and inflammation. So I was very curious about how can people stay healthy instead of like me seeing people being sick at the hospital, how could we go out and prevent this? And is it possible? What could we do about it? And something like uh, having a sweet tooth and snacking and stuff like that, that was definitely something I was very curious around uh, because that is a direct way to um, increasing your risk of type 2 diabetes. So that was my first mm -hmm. complete whole study, which was published in Cell Metabolism in 2017. That was my master thesis, you can say. And right after that, I wanted to... So, yeah, so yeah. Actually, I'll let you keep going, but I really want to dig into that because I think that's oh, yeah. an incredibly uh, thoughtful or incredibly useful piece of information. So maybe we'll come back to that. Okay. So, well, I just wanted to dig even deeper into the basic science, but just keep it in humans still because that's kind of my speciality, you can say. I, I don't do research in mice and rodents, so and I didn't want to start that. So I was just... I just kept my focus on human studies. So my master thesis was in humans, and I did the same uh, in my PhD, but switched completely to something called brown fat research, because that was hot and wild at that time, you could say. It was something completely 
new discovery around year 2000 and up to 2013, this was discovered as the new way to prevent uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes if we could increase this mystical tissue or organ in the body. And who knew what that was? Because when I was asked, do you want to research this? I was like, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> I know about white fat, but I never heard about brown fat. So I found it a bit fascinating when I when I realized, I read a bit about it, of course, when I realized that white fat is actually our, um, you can say, the kind of fat that stores our energy and what we want to get rid of, right? That is the white fat on our bellies and thighs, and we want to get rid of that. So that stores energy, and the brown fat does the opposite. That uses the energy, increases our energy expenditure in the body. So these two kind of tissues, which is, they're both fat types, but they were completely opposite. So if we can increase the activity of the brown fat, then that could eat away some of the white fat. And I found that just so fascinating, but it became even more fascinating when I could see in the literature that the one thing that is most potent to activate the brown fat, our non-shivering thermogenesis is also called, that was cold, cold temperatures. So actually it was not even, we don't even have a drug to activate the brown fat yet that we can give to people. But what is most potent and why we actually have the brown fat is because when we get cold, it increases the heat, the, the heat in the body so we can keep ourselves warm. So it's very important that we have this tissue. So the curiosity around the brown fat, it was kind of like this stepwise questioning all the way. So what can we do with that? How can we use it in humans? How can we make this beneficial for us? And very quickly, it came to the question, what about winter swimmers? Do they have a lot of brown fat then? Do they have a lot of activity in it? Do they have increased metabolic rate or something like that? So interesting. So what, what I'm hearing is maybe a good way for the audience to frame it is that brown fat is metabolically active. It means it's, it's actually consuming energy in order to burn it rather than the white fat is maybe metabolically dormant where it's, it's more of a storage reserve. And I think that's super useful. Could yeah. you walk us through mechanistically um, what's happening there. So, um, you know, why would, how, how do we turn on brown fat? You said, you know, you expose ourselves to cold and the body, you know, converts maybe or produces more of this, this brown fat. I'd love to just have you walk us through mechanistically. You know, is it the adrenaline that's causing it? Is it the heat shock proteins? Is it a cascade of things? Do we know mechanistically what's actually causing the creation or this transfer into new brown fat cells? Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. So I think you asked me actually three questions. <laughs> so I'm, mm -hmm. Please help me if I forget two of them. I'm just going to start by how do we activate the brown fat? So the, the whole pathway of that. And I'm not saying that we know all the pathways yet, but we do know some of them, which makes sense, I think. So we have something called the cold receptors in our skin. And that's a good thing because when we then get cold on the skin, quickly these receptors will, through our peripheral and nerve endings, will send a signal to the brain up in a hypothalamus where we have the temperature regulating center. And here, this, the, the brain will sense, oh, and get the message, it is cold compared to what you just were. And because of that, it will increase uh, a neurotransmitter and hormone called uh, noradrenaline. And noradrenaline is the one thing that activates the brown fat. So on the surface of our brown fat cells, there are these uh, small 
um, uh, receptors who can take the who can sense uh, the the noradrenaline, and as soon as they connect, you have an activation of uh, the brown fat cell. And uh, what happens is that when the small mitochondria, so that is the energy fabrics in the cell, they get activated from this noradrenaline. It will use the fatty acid, the fatty acids, uh, the small droplets inside the brown fat cells, because there's a little bit of a storage in there uh, of free fatty acids, but that's quickly just used. And when, as soon as that is used, the brown fat cells suck up the sugar and free fatty acids from the bloodstream, and in that way, it um, it takes in um, the calories to as fuel. Uh, and and uses that. So that is why we think about the brown fat as a way of get rid of uh, glucose from the bloodstream and fat from the bloodstream and why it can potentially be also treating type 2 diabetes. That's so interesting. So what is it about cold that differentiates? So obviously adrenaline exists in the body at times other than just being cold. So if I train, uh, you know, with weights or, or, or in high intensity exercise, I get adrenaline. If I, if I do something that's stressful, I get adrenaline. Um, that doesn't, I mean, you could tell me, do, does that yeah. also activate brown cells or what is it specifically about cold that increases these brown, brown, brown fat cell production? Uh, well, yeah, there's, there are other things that also activates the brown fat. For example, actually exercise does activate also the brown fat, but not as potent as the cold. So if we are going for the most potent activator of the brown fat, that is cold temperatures, as far as we know. But it also makes sense if you think about it evolutionary, we we, we didn't uh, have isolated houses as we have today. We didn't have the ability to pack ourselves up like we do today. We are so thermocomfortable. But uh, if you think about it, all, also babies when they are born, they get super quickly cold because they, as soon as you take off the clothes, they don't have the ability to shiver in the muscles before they are like six months old, something like that. Um, and But they have a lot of brown fat and that is to keep the heat up, so to keep them warm. And it, it's activated immediately as soon as they are cold on the skin. So when you go out in a t-shirt on a winter day, and you get a little bit cold on the skin, even just in the face, or you breathe in cold air, cold receptors will quickly make sure that you activate your brown fat and just, just balancing that temperature out in your body so you don't get cold too cold because then you will start shivering. Because when the brown fat is not able to keep your heat up in the body, the muscles will help you. But the cold is the most potent one, if that was your question. But exercise can do that as well. It is not adrenaline, it's something called noradrenaline. I know it's, it's a little bit like, why is there a difference? But there, there is a difference. So noradrenaline yeah. specifically is the activator of, uh, of brown fat. But if you, if you look at what is activated when you go into, for example, uh, a cold plunge, you go uh, dip yourself in cold water, you will not have an increase in adrenaline. You will have an increase in noradrenaline and not as much in cortisol but you will have a noradrenaline. So noradrenaline is definitely the one stress uh, marker, uh, biomarker that is activating the brown fat. And what we saw in my studies is that it is activating the brown fat, even when we cool them down. And there's also a difference when you look at people who have ex exposed themselves to multiple winter swimming seasons compared to a control group. 
That's a number. We see all these interesting uh, stories out of like Siberia of these children being exposed to cold at a very young age. Have you ever looked at one the the result of that, whether it be immediately or long term? And is there is there any validity um, or maybe merit in getting exposed to additional cold at a young age, as far as its ability to change, you know, call it thermogenesis for life, or change maybe metabolism or gene expression? Is that something you've ever looked at? I, I don't think that we really have that kind of long-term data yet. I, I could be wrong, but I I don't re- quite remember stumbling about that. Um, but I think also that the research in brown fat and the focus on brown fat is after the millennium. So I don't I don't think that we really have that long-term uh, studies yet where we have followed people and, and measured their brown fat continuously to see this kind of people living specifically here. But, but there are studies showing um, different volumes of brown fat depending on regions and countries. So we, we, we do have data on that. We also know that there's a difference between men and women. So women have more brown fat than men. I think we can also maybe explain that. But, but to answer your question, it's like, I think it's very interesting. It could be that some people who expose themselves to uh, the cold all the time is more prone to have um, an increased thermogenesis. There are studies showing that people who work outside a lot, they have more brown fat. So definitely it would make sense. Also, there are studies showing, for example, that fishermen, I love this study, because they, they have their hands in cold water all the time, and they are more adapted to cold. And that also shows that they are not cold because they increase their uh, their heat because of they have an increased uh, thermogenesis. And their cold adaptation is all over the body, even though they only expose their hands to the cold water all the time. So it's systemically. So even though you don't walk around outside as a outdoor wor- worker, completely naked or in a swimsuit, um, you will still get adapted to cold temperatures just because you expose some parts of your body, at least uh, to cold. Fascinating. And I know you said you studied diabetes a little bit, and you've also said that brown fat uh, activation or ultimate exposure to cold will drop down blood glucose. Does that mean that we could deduce that some cold exposure would actually be a good intervention with people with chronically elevated blood glucose? So what we see in my study is that if you are lean and healthy, even when you are lean and healthy, you can still get a, an increased thermogenesis and even a better glucose balance when you expose yourself to cold water immersion. And we didn't really expect to see that. So I think that even though it's difficult to just transfer those results and just say, well, type 2 diabetics, uh, we cannot do that. But we can hypothesize that they will also benefit from it on their metabolism. Because if you are healthy and you will increase your insulin sensitivity, get a better glucose balance, it, it might also work on people who has a disruption in their metabolism. So it's a good question, but I think that it's definitely worth uh, investigating. Very interesting. So the way my mind categorizes hot and cold is there's cold on its own and that has unique benefits. And then there's hot heat on its own and that has unique benefits. But then there's also the overlap. And there's the intersection of these things. So I'd like to. So we've discussed cold a little bit, and and how that increases brown fat activation. Is there any additional things that we should mention as far as like mechanism and benefit of cold before we then shift into heat, and then eventually make our way into the overlap of them, and why it maybe is a unique synergistic therapy? 
So there is a lot of, I think there are many benefits of using cold therapy. It's not only for metabolism. I know we just dug into that because we started with my research. But there are so many levels you can talk about the benefits because it when you expose the whole body uh, to cold water, you would have activated all the cells in your body. And as soon as you do that, you will have an acute effect, which will give you better mood. You have an increase uh, in noradrenaline uh, and dopamine you an increase in oxytocin, you will feel grateful, better drive, you will have motivation, you will reset the thoughts that you have before you went into the water would not be the same when you get out for the water because you cannot, because you completely trend you, you translate or you transform the neurotransmitters in your brain. So whatever thoughts you have, whatever worries you had before you went into the water would not be seen the same when you get out. It's very difficult though. We will have to wait a couple of hours and maybe you will see it as bad as you did before. But the worries um, the worries don't survive these kind of like uh, exposures to, to cold and the shock and the survival mode that the body goes into. So there's definitely a mental benefit part of going into the cold water, which I think is very interesting. And then there's the overlap. I can agree I with you on that. I'll just say quickly, I can yeah. absolutely agree with you on the, it's because it requires so much surrender and relaxation that you just couldn't possibly maintain the same level of tension or worry that you had before you went. It just doesn't happen. No, because it's impossible. The body goes into a fight and flight mode. You have to survive. The body has to shut down everything that's not necessary. And you're thinking about whatever is going to happen tomorrow or a meeting that you're going to have or who's going to say what is not really that important. Right now, you just have to survive. And I think that is, that's amazing because that really shows that the body is capable of just keeping a complete focus on what is happening right now. And that is what we may maybe lack a little bit today because we are, right. there's so much disturbance, so much to worry about and so many things that are interrupting us. So going into the cold is like resetting everything that's like disturbing us, right? All the noise is like shut down. And when you are done with your cold plunge, you will still have all the things that you had before, but you will maybe see them differently. And when you do this a couple of times a week, this might help you keep yourself in more of a better mental balance. And then there is the, the, the gratefulness to the world, to the um, to yourself that you are doing this to yourself. You are helping yourself reset all this time and it might keep you just above. I mean, that is something that made me struggle with. So I think that it has a lot of benefits also when it comes to the mental health. And then there's the overlap. And I think that is the interesting part. So when you go, when you look at inflammation and I just talked about insulin sensitivity and glucose uh, balance and, and so forth, you can see in, in the scientific studies that cold exposure will uh, help you lower your blood pressure when you have exposed yourself to this uh, for a couple of months and you do this continuously. So lower blood pressure and heart rate is a, a very strong outcome for how well your uh, cardiovascular system is. Because if you have a high blood pressure, it shows that you have inflammation and it shows that your body is struggling. So if you can lower your blood pressure, then it means that you have a better blood flow in your body. You have better oxygenation of all your cells. You will have a better cardiovascular system. So I really think that these um, 
you could say overlap, that was the the physical part. So if you have lower inflammation, you will also have a lower risk of depression and anxiety because it has been shown that one of the risks for depression and anxiety and also dementia is actually inflammation. And this has been shown in studies. So if you can work on your inflammation uh, in the body, then you will also work on your mental health. Yeah, so I've got a number of questions still on the topic of cold. So one thing when you speak of inflammation, I think of neural inflammation, even at the level of the brain. And so obviously we know there's a systemic benefit, but have you seen any validity or value in actually submersing the head into the, into the water to decrease inflammation in the brain? Is that, is that a direct mechanism? If I submerse my head, I could actually get an increased uh, or increased benefit, or is it just systemic as long as I'm getting most of my body kind of covered? Obviously, when you get cold water in your face, or actually just get water in your face, you will activate the vagus nerve, which could be a good thing because that will help you stress down. If you are in cold water, you have already exposed so much of your body to cold that you don't really need the rest up here because that little piece you have up there, you have to protect really hard because I know that a lot of people say, and I still hear people say this, but when you submerge into cold water, you don't increase the blood flow to the brain. You decrease the blood flow to the brain. Mm -hmm which means that you have activated your sympathetic nervous system. And that means the blood flow to the brain will decrease by 30 to 40%. So that means you don't really need to expose more water to the, your whole head because that's just going to increase the heat loss from your body. And also your core temperature will decrease very rapidly after that. But also you, you, you don't need it because you're already exposed that much of your body up to your neck to cold water and you will have a lot of activation of all the heat shock proteins, brown fat and whatever you want to activate. I just see it as a risk. That's why I'm saying that. I And I haven't even found studies saying that it's a super good idea. You mentioned dropping your, your body temperature. Now that's interesting. So has there been anyone looking at the degree to which we should look to drop our body temperature? Like, is there a certain point where it's no longer beneficial if it goes too far down? Or is just like, do we want to see a small drop? Has anyone ever looked at that? Um, so I have looked at like drowning accidents. And what I think, what I'm trying to like saying and protect against is hypothermia. So I don't, I don't think that it's a good idea that people overdo this. And I, I really think that it's good that people know what's happening. So exposing your body to the cold water isn't, is enough. Um, and studies have shown, this is a review from, done in, in a group of scientists from Canada who looked at the difference in core temperature drop when they compared studies performed in uh, people uh, submerging up to the neck compared to when they then also dunked the head in the water. And what they looked at was heat loss and core temperature drop. So what uh, what I could see in, in the studies from the drowning accidents is that 35 degrees in your core is like, that is not a temperature you want to go down to. <laughs> but that is, that is two degrees uh, lower than you normally would be, right? So 
And you could quickly come down to that if you stay too long in the water and even if you dunk your head, because the Canada study I just mentioned also showed that if you expose your body to the cold water, the heat loss rate um, from the core will increase up to 17%. But if you then also dunk the head into the water, it would like add to that like 30% or something like that. So it's it's really, it could be uh, really detrimental if you don't know what you're doing or you maybe stay too long or, yeah. So it's an inc- heat loss increase to the core because you don't have any fat protection, nothing tissue from the head and your uh, arteries here into your uh, into your core. But you have that on your arms, you have that on your necks, and it's more protect. You're more protected of your core temperature if you just expose yourself up to here. And you want to do this as a good thing for you. You don't want to do risky business just to keep yourself healthy, right? So that's why I'm. I'm just informing. I'm not. I'm not saying people do this wrong or anything. I'm just saying what the science shows, and I haven't really found studies showing that it's a. It's very beneficial or adding beneficial things if you dump the head. Only the vagus nerve, but then you can just, you know, splash some water in the face. Yeah. Yeah. So shifting gears to heat exposure. And so most people when they, or at least currently, most people when they um, talk about cold exposure, they also talk about coupling that with heat, with um, heat. So they talk about people with cold and heat together. But if we just sort of separate them for a moment, able to kind of enlighten us on What's actually happening mechanistically in the body when it comes to sauna exposure? So when someone gets in the sauna, we're seeing a, an enormous number of benefits. I know you spoke on, recently on your social media about the benefits of long-term sauna exposure and and the and the temperature specifically, and what people are seeing as far as these long-term cohort studies. Yeah, there are some incredible cohort studies from Finland which shows that if you expose yourself to a sauna more than one time per week even one is also good but if you can do this just two times and up to then seven times that's that's what they have measured um, then you have an increase you have increased benefits on your cardiovascular system so just to those who don't know this study i'm just gonna just tell what it's about so back in the 80s in finland um scientists invited around 2000 uh, sauna bathers who did saunas from one to seven times per week and just followed them each year and and just asked them, so how many times did you go into the sauna and kept a record of that? Um, and also how many minutes they stayed in there. And that was in order for them to see in 20, and now it's 25 and almost 30 years ago, to see if there are some correlations between going into the sauna and how many times, so the dose of sauna, how many minutes also, if that was correlated to uh, mortality, so early death, or um, any kind of cardiovascular disease, a mental disease, that's Alzheimer's, dementia. Um, they looked at um, psychotic um, episodes. So they looked at so many things to see, is there any association between how many times you go into a sauna and how many minutes you sit there and is there actually a higher threshold and a lower threshold for when the benefits fade out or plateau out at least? So what they found was um, in a study they published in 2015, where it's showing that if you use the sauna 
two to three times per week, you will have a, um, a, low, a decreased risk of cardiovascular diseases by 27%. And if you then go seven times per week, that's every day, if you have time for that, um, then you will have a lower risk of 40%. And also they looked at mortality, so early death. So if you uh, go or two to three times per week, you will have a, a lower risk of early death compared to those who went into the sauna only one time per week. So the controlled group was actually one time per week. And those who went seven times per week had an even lower mortality, so up to 40% uh, percent as well. Uh, of all course mortality, so that's everything they just put into one poll and then looked at early death. But What I think is interesting in this cohort study is that the control group was not some random group who was very uh, and a completely another phenotype compared to the sauna bathers. They looked at those who were already sauna bathers but only went one time per week. And what they saw was also that there is a higher threshold and a lower threshold for how long time it's healthy to use the sauna. So above 19 to 30 minutes was not beneficial because then the benefits faded out. And also below 10 minutes, 8-10 minutes, then they also did not see any difference. So it really shows that there is like this window where it's beneficial and you see this dose-dependent relationship between timing and also how many times per week. So I really think that it shows that it comes down to what is called hormetic stress. So if you expose yourself to a low dose of stress, then it's healthy for you. And this is, this is how my research started, right? I wanted to research winter swimmers and sauna bathers who did not use this um, very much, but just a little bit to keep it in what I hope would be the hormetic stress space where they expose the, the cells to acute kind of stress, but not overdose it meaning staying too long in the cold, staying too long in the sauna, and then overstress the cells because then they get exhausted and then they age uh, faster. And then you age faster. So it has to be over 10 minutes, under 30 minutes. And I believe in your, in your post, you said 176 degrees seemed to be the, the, the sweet spot. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's Fahrenheit. Yeah. So in, in Celsius, that would be around 80. 80 Celsius. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And so, and then they, what they found, just so I want to clarify for the audience that more than that was not beneficial. So doing 240 degrees for 45 minutes, which is what a lot of people were doing now, seems like it has overkill. Really? 45 minutes? Yes. No, I'm not me, but <laughs> there's people out there who are doing that. Very, very, very hot saunas. That's <laughs> so nice. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's just... I. Yeah, so that's why I'm also, that's pretty much what I want to teach people. It's not necessary. It's, it's, mm. it's, um, and it's not new science. If we, if we talk, talk about what is, what kind of stress do we have? We have chronic stress, which everybody knows about, and then we have the healthy stress. And the healthy stress is still like a new concept for people, but this was discovered in 1936 and published in Nature magazine by Hans Seeley, who discovered this. It's not something new. So talking about it is a really good thing. And it's also good to, to get this message out that you can go with the low dose because the low dose is what's keeping your cells 
um, alive. They they when we expose ourselves to, um, for example, the sauna, what happens is that we activate what's called the heat shock proteins, and that will repair the cells and make them stronger because the body has to act as if you're going to do this stupid thing again, which might kill you because that's that's how this uh, that's how the body reacts, right? Both to the cold but also to the heat. Um, but the thing is, you're doing this deliberately, so you know when to go out. So you can you can increase uh, the strength of your cells, but overdoing it will just exhaust them. So I think that 45 minutes might be a little bit too long. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just just the reporter. So yeah. So we speak of um, the incredible benefits of cold, the incredible benefits of heat, and how about the synergy? Is, has there been any known studies around people doing these things together, and why we would intentionally combine these modalities rather than doing them separately? Yeah. So we have been doing this combined in Scandinavia for many years. So we already know about the contrast therapy um, and it's not a new concept. It's maybe a forgotten concept, which um, I have <laughs> chosen to study in my research because I think that the alternation between the cold and the heat is just too complete the extremes of temperatures. But if you keep it at the hormetic stress level, cold heat and alternation between it you will activate different different kind of um uh, pathways in the body but and then maybe they will be overlapping even so you have the heat shock proteins you have the cold shock proteins you have the neurotransmitters activated very rapidly in the cold water but you would also have the benefits of the sauna when you do the the because of the, the cardiovascular benefits because it it actually mimics um, and exercise when you go to a training center. What I know is that in my study, we did see that when you combine that, that we have this increased insulin sensitivity and also the, a better glucose balance. So it might work on different pathways, which we know separately a lot about from the cold and from the heat. Uh, and in my study, we did see that you have an increased um, activation of the brown fat in the winter swimmers. Amazing. And um, people in Scandinavia definitely have been doing this for a very long time, and you're in the right place to be exposed to all the different levels of modality. And, and where that takes my mind is um, the question that comes up a lot, that I get a lot, is can we differentiate between infrared saunas and um, conventional Swedish or Finnish saunas, and it just come down to temperature? Or is there, is there, is there some known benefit to infrared versus conventional Swedish slash Finnish songs. Oh, there's there is a. I think there's a difference. It's also it's not only the temperature because uh, infrared saunas are great. I think they have this mild, um, the mild heat is also very good. You can sit a little bit longer in these saunas, and also the wavelengths. And it's also depending on if it's near, middle, or a, a far infrared uh, sauna, they do also now a combination <laughs> of also the heat and also with the infrared. So now you have a combination saunas everywhere. So I think that what we see uh, from the literature is that the infrared saunas have beneficial effects, especially for um, 
psoriasis and eczema. Um, so it has uh, benefits for uh, skin diseases and the skin texture. So if you have dry skin, for example. So these studies have been performed in, in especially in kids. But I think that we don't have that much literature on infrared saunas when it comes to metabolic um, health. Um, so we still lack that. And it could be that because it is a mild um, exposure, it is not activating the heat shock proteins um, or, uh, yeah, that I, I don't know. And it, it really depends on how much you sweat. So it also depends on how long do you sit in the sauna? Is it a near, far or a middle wavelength sauna? So it's, re it's really, really a difficult place to, uh, to, uh, to study, I think, also you know, for scientists. Right. Do you know any of the differences? Like would someone want to look for a far infrared, a near infrared, a mid-range or something that does all of them? Is there any known benefit to any specific wavelength? I mean, I think that the far infrared goes deeper into the tissue, so it could actually go uh, into the, the muscle tissue, which has some benefits because it's uh, increasing the blood flow even more uh, to the skin and to the yeah. tissue, which is super good for joint joint pain and muscle pain. So if you, for example, uh, end your um, exercise session, you could, you could definitely use an infrared sauna as a way to recover also. So it really depends on the wavelengths which is, is, of course, something that a person who is looking for a sauna should look for. What is the right wavelength for what I especially want for my sauna? So, and it's a little bit easier yeah. with, the, with the traditional saunas because they just heat you up. <laughs> yeah, I love that. We've, so we've got through all the, the data and the research or a lot of it. And now I want to get into the conversation of protocols, right? So you mentioned specifically there that after a workout may be a great time to do an infrared sauna, whereas most people know that after workout may not be the best time to be doing cold exposure. And we also can get into the Soberg effect, and we'd love to talk about that. So they said, if you, if you want to walk through how much, let's start with cold. And we say, well, what is, what is the ideal amount of time to be ex ex exposed to cold to receive the full benefit and temperature? It's a really good question. And I think that we definitely also need more research to show different protocols on this. I think that my research has shown maybe a protocol, a way to do this. So what we saw in my study is that if you expose yourself to cold uh, temperatures, so cold plunges and sauna, you could do 11 minutes per week and divide that on two to three days and three dips and two sauna visits. And the sauna is 57 minutes per week divided on two to three days. So you have to divide that onto different days. And when you then calculate that out, it's only one to two minutes in the water per, per dip. So you don't have to stay that long actually to, to mimic some of the, the effects that we saw in, the, in my study at least. So I think that there should be more studies where we can see where is the higher threshold, what happens on, on, in the long run, but maybe it's a good place to start as a, as a way to have some kind of like a guideline. Yeah. And how about the intentional introduction of shivering? Because that's something Dr. Huberman talks about a lot is like as the desirable end state is like, we want to get here to receive the benefit. Are you asking me whether people should shiver or? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 
and eventually when you get adapted to the cold water you you would stop shivering uh, and you would maybe be able to stay in the water for a very long time without shivering so if that is your goal and if i say that is your goal then you will stay in the water for many many minutes until you shiver but with adaptation you stop actually the this the, the the shivering that you can see but the muscles are shivering but they're just very efficient at increasing your temperature and they increasingly get better at it and the shivering will subside so i don't think that shivering should be a goal for anyone i think that you should keep an eye a bit on the time uh, how long you stay there and be satisfied with the accomplishment that you did and not use this as a goal because of again because of safety of course but also because you don't know what happens if you stay in the cool water for i don't know some people stay a very long time maybe 10 minutes maybe 15 minutes and if they're not even really moving i mean exercising it could be some people are really swimming and now we are talking athletes right um that's different because they're using their muscles and that's very different from a plunge where you just go in and you sit there and get cold so shivering is a good thing because you increase your metabolism so you shouldn't be avoiding shivering in that way but if you start shivering and you are new to this then go up because you at that point you you are done that's fine you have increased your metabolism brown fat and muscles but you don't need to see it as a goal because at one point you won't feel the shivering that much anymore that's great advice that's great advice thank you so a lot of my audience is focused on uh, performance specifically adapting to exercise and, and training hard and, and wanting to adapt and there's been some suggestion that taking um, or being exposed to cold post-workout could actually blunt post-workout inflammatory response that we want the beneficial response to from exercise are you familiar with that research and can you say anything about that yeah so if you do a cold plunge after workout yeah Yes, so there are some studies showing that, and it it completely makes sense. So if you, for example, have an injury, you will put ice on it, and that is to decrease the inflammation and decrease the blood flow to that area. And when you do that, then you stop the process of inflammation. And when you work out, then you, of course, want the inflammation to be there if you want to increase uh, hypertrophy, so if you want to grow your muscles. But if you are very concerned about every growing every muscle in your body and you don't mind being a little bit sore afterwards because you are not maybe competing uh, at this moment, then don't end with a cold plunge. But going to the sauna is a really good thing. So I always do that when I go working out. So I go into the sauna and then do a bit of stretching because then you will also be more flexible. But ending on the cold plunge is um, is a good thing if you are an athlete and you want to Uh, be less sore and there are definitely studies showing that it helps but you actually have to stay there for a bit um, and you don't have to expose the whole body to the plunge um, but just mostly actually the parts that you have been using Dr. Soberg what is the Soberg effect the Soberg principle the Soberg principle yeah 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 so, <laughs> the Soberg principle I didn't make that up <laughs> that was that's the Huberman yeah So yeah. we had a conversation, it's a while ago, but he asked some of the same questions you asked me. So how to do this and that, and how to how should we end our cold uh, contrast therapy or whatever. 
And then I said, well, I would advise people to end with the cold plunge um, because that's going to increase your metabolism. When you do that, then you force your body to heat up naturally. And when you heat up naturally, you will force every thermogenic cell in your body, muscles and brown fat, to increase the heat in your body. That is the only tissues that you have to increase the heat, right? So that has to activate to keep your temperature up and to reheat your whole body. That's a lot of tissue. So it takes a, yeah, depending on how adapted you are, it's going to take a while, some hours for new new beginners, you can say. And if you are adapted already, it might only take a half an hour or an hour, but keep moving afterwards because if you sit down, you will have what's called um, the after shivering because of the after drop. And it's not like it's it, dangerous or anything. It could be just a bad experience. <laughs> so just keep moving. What do you, yeah, how would you suggest people time their cold and heat exposure? And specifically what I'm asking is, I know you mentioned don't do cold after training and do hot after training. Specifically what I'm asking though is, there's some people talking about the benefits of heat and cold exposure before sleep. And I don't know if you have any experience with that, any insight on the research and ultimately how we would utilize it to, to improve our deep sleep. Yeah, so we we don't really have any research completely stating that if you don't uh, if you do cold water uh, uh, plunges before bedtime, then you cannot sleep. But here we are maybe looking into what is maybe logic and what we know from research already is that when you when you expose yourself to a cold plunge, you will have an increase in your sympathetic nervous system, and that's your fight and flight system. And that is not how you, you go to sleep. So doing that right before going to sleep, it might, it might not be beneficial for you for falling asleep. So it will keep you awake. But what you could do is taking a sauna because sauna is going to relax you and you will feel more distressed and you have a, a um, lower heart rate after just one sauna session. And that's going to help you fall asleep. And also because of the heat, you will dump the heat afterwards and the core temperature will then drop. And because the core temperature drop, you will have an easier time falling asleep. And that is what sleep requires. It actually requires a physical thing as your core temperature to drop. It's very funny, but that's how it is. So a sauna before bed, yeah. That could be been. And so I've, I've been trying some contrast therapies before bed, like short duration cold and longer duration saunas. That seems to be really effective for me. I'm not sure why. Yeah. It almost feels like it just puts in, like, puts in the, you know, the benefit of cold, obviously being calming the mind and changing the, uh, the psychological state. So like releasing the stresses of the day, but then finishing on the sauna, the hot, the heat seems to put me in that relaxed state. So as long as I finish with a nice extended sauna, I tend to get a really, really good sleep. Yeah. I think we need more studies on that. It could be very interesting also that um, it, it doesn't affect me, for example. Uh, but what does affect me if I drink coffee after five o'clock? So there might be some pathways there that are not completely the same um, and which would be very interesting to, to study further because I sleep like a baby when I do my cold exposure and even if I do them after seven o'clock. So it could be that something else is going on and it's not comparable to a cup, cup of coffee completely, but it's, it's also doing what a cup of coffee would do, but I just don't feel 
uh, as energized uh, and uh, as I do if I drink coffee, for example. So it's it's kind of different in some ways. I think it's yeah. Coffee would be very different from an adenosine pathway too, right? Coffee is really working on the adenosine pathway, and I don't think the cold. Yeah, that. yeah. You get the adrenaline yeah. bump, but not the adenosine. Yeah, exactly. That could also be uh, one of the explanations. At least I think that there's so much more we need to know about this, and I'm very much looking forward to see what comes because exactly when to do this in the evening and in the morning we could definitely say do this but i think it could be interesting also to have some firm studies showing exactly why we should do it in more like yeah on the physiological level and the biochemistry yeah. what happens but that's a nerdy thing i know but it's like that would be interesting <laughs> yeah that's why we're here though Dr. Yeah. Silberg, thank you so much for making the time and for continuing to research stuff so that we can make effective decisions to improve our health i really appreciate you being here and and certainly for carving time from your busy schedule so thank you you're very welcome yeah can you tell our audience where they can reach you if you want if you want to mention your social media or your website or anywhere else if you want to mention your course uh, yeah, so people can find me on social media. I am on Instagram and where I think that I'm most active. Um, I'm also on YouTube and TikTok and Facebook and whatever, but I also have a website where people can find my courses and I have an upcoming education for practitioners. So if you're a coach and uh, you want to teach people how to use cold therapy, heat therapy, breath work, then I have made an education for that. Amazing. We'll look to that and everything else we talked about here in our show notes at muslimtologist.com slash podcast. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.